Welcome to another episode of the Valley Hub Stories podcast. I'm your host, Penny Coulter. Today's episode has been recorded on Gumbangi country, and we acknowledge the privilege it is to share in the community created by elders past, present and emerging. episode I'm talking with Captain Rob Couchman from Nembucca Heads Fire and Rescue or Station 397 if numbers are your jam. Here Rob talks about his experience as a firefighter in the Nembucca Valley, his appreciation for his crew and his hopes for the service going forward. We also chat briefly about the 2019 bushfires so please be mindful that this could be tricky for some who may have been impacted and as always please reach out to your family and friends for support or contact Lifeline on 131114 if this episode triggers anything for you. There's a lot to get into today and I think you'll enjoy listening to Rob's chipper nature and his appreciation for the service, his crew and the community. It's contagious and I'm sure he would love for you to reach out and let him know you've listened. So let's jump in. Rob, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, welcome to our station. As you can see, it's a lovely little spot. So I'm happy to have you here and have a chat. Yeah. Um, so Rob, tell me about you. Well, I'm oh, 37 years old this year. I've been doing this job for 17 years and I've been the captain here for about 12, 12 years now, so actually longer. Anyway, quite a few years. And, um, yeah, painter by trade. I've done a few other things over the years, but that's now now what I'm doing. And, yeah, father of two, happily married, living in the Nambucca Valley for quite a number of years now. So, yeah, quite invested in the, the town and the people here. So yeah. I really enjoy it, yeah. So how did you get involved with the Faris? Well, there's there's a bit of a story behind that, and I think it was a bit of subliminal advertisement by the fire brigade at Yurunga many, many years ago where I went to preschool, which was next door to the fire station at Yurunga back then. And when they'd come down and do their duties on the on the appliance, they'd get open the gate and let all the kids come in. We'd help wash the fire truck back when I was two years old. So it sort of implanted in my mind. And when I turned 20, I saw a flyer advertising position in Yurunga and put my hand up for it and, yeah, fell in love with the job and now I'm, now I'm still going. Yeah, so I guess it does work. Those, those little visits to the preschool will just start planting the seed nice and early and get, yeah. <laughs> get them to join up later. So um, what are some of the, I guess, the things that have kept you in the service for so long? Oh, the, the people who I work with keep me in this job, 100%. It's a rewarding job in that you are able to help people but it's the people you work with that keep you here 100%. That's what I value the most about this job. Mm. So tell me about the people that you work with. What is the structure of your station? We've got a fairly, well, officially it's a fairly stringent structure as far as it's a, based on a military model. I'm the captain. I've got a de- oh, two deputy captains, one of them I'm rotating them through at the moment, and then I have additional staff underneath that. But... We work here, it's a very much an independent workplace. I expect of my staff to be independent and able to take the initiative and if they see something they want to do or find a plan, I'm more than happy to support them into realising those plans. And I think that's it's really important as far as a leadership position to make sure that my staff feel that empowerment to go and do what 
they see needs doing as well and buy in into the whole service in mm. the valley. So you're a, a retained service rather than a volunteer service. So tell me about the scope of, of people that you attract in this role. Look, it's amazing the breadth of people we attract and I don't think we're special in any way. We aren't. A lot of people do think there's something special about fires. It's it's not that. It's just being willing to help other people and understanding that you 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 have the power, not not just because you've got the uniform on, you as a person in the street, you have the ability to go and help someone. And that's the sort of people we want to see. It's people from all over, like a lot of people who work in the trades. We've had plumbers, we've had electricians, we've had ambulance officers, we've had police officers have joined, self-employed, employed in other service, in other places. It's That's what makes, I think, especially the retain system so valuable is that we have such a breadth of skills and talents. Even if you're not, you may not be a tradesman, you might not be a mechanic, or you might not be practically minded, your skills that you bring to the table could be communication, mm. being able to effectively control a chaotic incident through skills you learn in your workplace. All these things come together and when we put them into the team that we have or that most stations have, or I'll say all stations have, that team, we all just bounce. And and when you see it working, the way we have it here, the the way it bounces off each, we bounce off each other here, it's just, it's it's unreal. Mm. It is unreal. What do you think are some of the, I guess, the misconceptions that hold people back from from joining up? A lot of people think they can't. It's funny, I, I do, we've been recently increasing our recruitment campaign and doing a lot of face-to-face recruitment up at Woolworths or in the main street. And it's it's this strange thing where I'll ask someone, like, you ever thought about being a firefighter? And they, they just go, oh, no, <laughs> I couldn't do that. And they walk off and I always try and work out why and they can never give me a straight answer. And it seems, to, I think, things that, can hold you up as the level of commitment mm. is. And I'm not going to lie, there is a commitment to it. But again, it's working together as a team to allow us to have a life outside of this. But yeah, I think just people don't back themselves. Do you think it can be a gendered thing too and uh, like a fitness thing? And Fitness thing, yes. Gendered, I think it, it shouldn't be. We've had quite a number of female staff. We have one currently serving. of always said it's you can do the job it doesn't matter who you are the fitness thing can get you though mm-hmm. the biggest drawback we will have with people who want to join uh like serious heart problems or asthma is a big one um, mainly because if you put on the breathing gear we wear it's like going scuba diving the compressed air will trigger an asthma attack so that can can hinder some people joining but it's just having a basic level of fitness and maintaining it so we do a fitness drill every year to maintain it. Every five years we have to do a medical check. So we go to the doctors to get our bloods done, all that sort of stuff, just to make sure that we're maintaining that level of fitness. And there are things that can, when you get in, that can support you to maintain that fitness as well. That's about the the thing that stops people. And I do feel historically the fire brigade's always been viewed as a male profession and, and mm. it isn't. And hasn't been for a long time, but for some reason, despite us trying to have those discussions and say, no, it's not, no, it's not, it seems to be struggling to land or or people aren't hearing it. I don't know why, but it's absolutely not. It's working as a team to get the job done. 
and using everyone's skills to get the job done. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, how closely, because you've obviously got your Newey Creek Fire Brigade, you've got your, uh, your Valor and your Maxwell and your other sort of outlying mm-hmm. rural fire services, how sort of collaboratively would you be working on a regular basis or do you, are you sort of more coming together for those those significant events? Uh, no, we work together pretty regularly um, from small jobs to large jobs. We are very fortunate here with the rural fire service volunteers that we have around here that we work really effectively as a group. Everyone knows their roles our limitations and our strengths, and we always work to those. And it's been very effective in just seeing jobs done. Good relationship. We have a firefighter here who's in the Newey Creek Rural Fire Service. He's joined us. And, again, the skills, we do interlock. Mm. Yeah. Yep. The commitment factor, as you've mentioned, something that can prevent people from feeling as though they can engage. Is there something that you would say to people just about how you mentioned before that you all work together to make sure that there is that balance for everybody? Can you can you expand on that a little to abate the concerns some people may have? Yeah, so a lot of times people want to think about joining this and they think it's you're 24 hours a day, seven days a week you're on call and it's not how it is. We're mainly looking for people who can give us sort of three days, Monday to Friday, the equivalent of three days sort of during that daytime period of our normal office work. And that's that's sort of the major crux of what we're looking for. Mm. On top of that, look, we all have lives. It is a commitment and I'm not going to lie that it's not, but it is a team thing and there is a value that you get out of that commitment, understanding that putting yourself out there to make sure that your town has protection for whatever might come, it's a good feeling. It's one of the, those things that sort of keep you getting getting up and driving. Mm. And then the other thing is a good team that when you get up at 2 o'clock in the morning, you're, not, you're enjoying going to work with them. Yeah. Mm. So, but, look, we work together. We have a system. It's an, an app of some description and we can all look at what we're doing for the week. We all put in our times we've got to be away or what we're doing put it in as early as we can so everyone can work around each other. We have a discussion. Oh, hey, guys, something's come up. I need to go out of town from here to here. Can anyone cover me? Yeah, no, not a worry. I, I can come back early or no, I'm actually back in town early. Yes, I can do that for that time. And we all work off work off each other to make mm-hmm. sure that we still have lives, that we can still do the things we want to do. The more people we have, the easier it gets. So with nine people it's quite hard but, again, where our station's doing very well with nine people, we run shortages very very rarely. Mm. There will be times, and it's happened, middle of dinner, pager goes off. Halfway through cooking, pager goes off. Family birthday, pager goes off. And you go, oh, I'm on call. Oh, I can't go out. I can't do things. It's not all the time. Yeah. It's just about planning ahead mm. and working together. So we have to maintain a minimum of 24 hours of availability a week. That's the minimum. Now, that's not hard, but to be fair, personally, I've got a lot of commitments on at the moment and I'm still over 100 hours of availability. So if you're down to 24 hours, you 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 have to question, yeah, maybe maybe it's not what you you should do at the time. It doesn't mean it always will be like that either. But it's... About, yeah, again, it's about flexibility 
working together to make sure we've got that flexibility to work as a team and have a live at the same time mm. and maintain response. Yeah. You were um, at, the, at the start of your statement then, you, you, you mentioned something along the lines of, you know, pre- preventing incidents or coming together and, and the, the pride that you can draw from having a role in that. And I want to talk about your experience during the bushfires, of course, but I want to start by asking about what supports are in place to actually to support your staff in terms of mental health, in terms of physical health and, you know, I guess what that looks like because having had a similar conversation with somebody in the ambulance service, uh, it seemed as though that's still very much under development. So we've, as an organisation, in the last 10 years, have really started to take things like mental health and physical health very seriously. Mental health very specifically in not just preparation for some of the things we have to do and see, but also how we can recover from it or make sure we're maintaining our health, mental health in a, in a, a fruitful and useful way. You know, you have counselling services available. We have our peer support system in, available for mental health and that sort of thing. And that's not just for things like um, high-stress incidents. It's also for, you know, marriage counselling and working through that sort of stuff as well. Mm. So it's the organiser – and look, there will, always be, there will always be room to go – we can go further with this. But they're starting to take it very seriously and it's because it can cause such a such a long-lasting problem yep. in our organisation and making sure we catch it early rather than ending up down the road, being pensioned out and then trying to survive on that because mm-hmm. we haven't dealt, dealt with the problems early enough. So it's, it's something that we're absolutely looking at, mental health, physical health. Now obviously we're doing our fitness drills to maintain that sort of stuff. But we also have access to fitness programs where you can get a passport and you pay X amount out of your salary. I think it's 20-something dollars a week and you can access all these gyms. Or it used to be you go and get a membership at a gym and they'd pay 70% of your membership, that sort of stuff, to help support your your health in that way. Funny, I've just... Returned um, last week from a training in up in Nimboida doing in-water flood rescue and they pay for you to do an hour swimming a shift. So I don't know how it's going to work in the retained world because we're still – we've only just started getting access to this program but they're paying for you to go swimming to maintain your health because obviously that's a component of what we have to do. Mm. So, yeah, that department is taking it seriously. And we all, again, we go back to the team, but we're also all there too. And we are all firefighters, our senior senior members. We've been there. We've done that. We understand the pressures that you're going to have. And if that doesn't work, I know my bosses mm-hmm. have been there and done that and they know what pressure. So you can have that conversation early and we can we watch each other to, make, to see, hang on, you're not okay. Yeah. You know, is there something up? That's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I guess people probably wouldn't have factored in those other components of your job, like attending accidents, critical health incidents and floods and, yeah, there's a, there's a lot that we, as I guess as civilians, <laughs> don't consider. Well, yeah, and look, that's, that's of no one's fault either. It's, our role is expanding constantly. Mm. Part of that is to do with the struggles that some of our volunteer colleagues are having with recruitment 
So it's not just us struggling with recruitment, it's across the board, everyone's very time poor. But now we're starting to move into storm and tempest, like tarping roofs and removing trees from roadways, that sort of stuff. Floods uh, are very increasingly becoming the domain of fire and rescue because of the hazardous materials component. So mm. not necessarily the flooding aspect, but the, the cleanup because of all the biological contaminants in the in the flood water. We're increasingly moving into that space. Flood rescue or in water flood in water rescue that came out of the Lismore flood inquiry. That's now I, th- I think it's three hundred additional staff in New South Wales have been trained up for that. We're helping the ambulance service with assisting uh, assist ambulance lifting, getting casualties out of um, buildings, that sort of stuff. So we are, and then of course, road crash rescue, house fires, bushfires, bin fires, all the other things that go on top of that. So it it does keep it very interesting. You don't know what what you're going to when you get a call. It could be massive, it could be minor. But yeah, that is also part of the spice of life of the job. Going to the same thing every day would be pretty Mm. hard work. So at least we know we turn up, we go to work. It could be anything. Yeah. And you... Yeah, it could be something simple, helping a little old lady with a smoke alarm that's been going off or, you know, helping someone who's in a dire situation. And knowing that you've done something is is pretty pretty good. Knowing that you have the capability to do something is pretty good. And I think that's going back to, you know, what, what do you get out of, or I don't know if we've talked about, what you get out of the job. When you join and you're trained and you work in this space, it gives you the ability to, when you're out in the in the rest of the world, this confidence to deal with stressful situations. And I think that's a really valuable thing we get out of it. A lot of people talk about, oh, you get an MR licence or you get your first aid certificate or chainsaw. Yeah, that's all valuable. But I think personally for me, the big, biggest value I ever got was my ability to work in stressful situations that you will see in your town. Mm. You know, that medical training you get will not be very rarely used on another firefighter or at an incident, mm. but you might use it in the street. Yep. And in a small town, everyone knows you're a fiery. Yep. So you've got that skill set. And Turning back towards a critical incident response, let's talk about the bushfires. Yeah. So we were talking off air about, I guess, preventative measures that could have been put in place preceding those events and the national frustration that they weren't. What could you contribute in terms of, I don't want to say reassuring, because I feel like, you know, maybe we can't have that reassurance as a community, but, you know, what would you say to the community in terms of that kind of an event happening again? There were things that the state wasn't as prepared as we may have been able to have been prior to that. Certainly our aviation capacity at the time in New South Wales wasn't up to the level that was going to be able to deal with that sort of a fire event. I will say that that sort of fire event is not the norm and what we had available would be normally okay for a fire season. That fire season 2019-2020 was not normal and a lot of the prevention and preparation Techniques like backburn or hazard reduction burns, all that sort of stuff. I don't know if it would have, how much of an impact it would have had on the scale of those fires. A lot of it was just unstoppable. Yeah. Some of those fires were spotting five, ten kilometres ahead of the fire front 
into residential areas and just running in in different directions. Mm. And there's this bit of a concept that we should be burning every year, burning around towns and back burning. There is a positive to that. Yes, you are burning and it, it is creating a fire break. The downside of that is the more you burn, the more you create a fire-dependent ecosystem. So obviously there are certain types of trees and plants in Australia that use fire as part of their germination process, obviously gums, wattles. Those trees will survive a fire. They actually encourage fire growth. Their, their leaves, branches are quite flammable. So they encourage the fire growth to rip through, clear the ground so their seedlings can grow up. You burn all the time, you end up with a fire-dependent ecosystem on your doorstep. And what we saw during those fires, we, as in the overarching we as the fire service, were areas that had been burned, that went into drought and the trees went into stress. They dropped all their leaves, they dropped all their branches to protect the trunk because that's how they... How those gum trees work, and areas that had been burnt were then loaded with fuel again. Mm. And it just, the consequence of that was just basically unstoppable fires. There are what things that can help is preparing your property prior to the bushfire season. So that's clearing your gutters, making sure you haven't got trees right up against your house. Um, if you've got any Flammable things outside your house, they get brought inside, making sure your lawn's kept maintained. All those little things that we've, not only us but our volunteer colleagues, bang on about every year in the lead-up to the fire season. And if you haven't had a chance, go to the Get Ready weekends. The RFS have them lead-up to summer. Go there and ask for tips. There is an element of self-responsibility with fire safety and not just with bushfires, that's with house fires as well. And... That's for the community. You have to take take a bit of ownership with that too. Mm. And there are resources we can give to help, help you plan, that sort of stuff. But it is also on our community to understand that we live in Australia. Mm. I love this country, but there are hazards. <laughs> they, they wrote a poem about it. Yep. And we need to be mindful of that. So if you live in an area that could be high risk, you're prepared early. You've made the decision. I always say a lot of people make this call. They go, oh, well, I'm just going to leave. I don't need to stress about preparing my house. You always prepare your home as if you've got no choice but to stay because if you leave it too long... You might have to. You might have to. It's maintaining your awareness of what's going on. So it's not necessarily... There was a, f- a problem with the fires near me app, which I'm... Being it's a different fire service that managed that, I'm not sure how the background of that worked, but incidents weren't getting updated quick enough on that app and people were relying on that. It's like, oh, well, I'm looking at, and you would have seen the app itself, you look at the boundary of the fire, oh, oh I know where that mm. is. A fire is so dynamic in 10, 15, 20 minutes and the time it takes for that to up, update, that fire could be doing something completely different. So in the lead-up to that, people needed to be going. What's the weather doing? Is it going to be a, a crazy hot day? What's our fire level? Right, should I be here or should I go into town somewhere a bit safer and just hang out for the day? Do I have somewhere I can go that's a bit a bit safer rather than waiting for it to all hit the fan mm. and then suddenly you're trying to get out? And that's where the majority of fire fatalities happen is people trying to leave too late. Yep. 
But again, we go back to those 2019, 2020 bushfires. That was just unbelievable fire growth. Yeah. Just pretty well unstoppable. And people don't remember that we actually started fighting the fires. It wasn't November when it all started kicking off. We were fighting running grass fires through swamplands at Port Macquarie in July, so the middle of winter. So we had massive operations then and that's when we as a fire service, especially locally, we'd stay in to have the conversation going, all right, here it comes. We we started ramping up, getting ready for that. It feels like a bit of a silly question because, of course, it would have been horrific, but I guess um, I'm I'm interested to know – because as a community, it was sort of this really contrasting experiencing experience because it was obviously traumatising for a lot of people and then at the same time really kind of forced the community to, to come together and to have a sense of support for each other. But I want to know, you know, what it was like on the front line and whether you felt that support, I guess, from the community at the time. Yeah. And, yeah, we did. Yeah. We did. Oh, well, we've still got the... <laughs> Pictures on the wall. Pictures on the wall. <laughs> yep. Yeah, 100% we did. It was, like, again, that's not why we do it. It was nice to feel that, but that's not why we do it. But, yeah, you absolutely felt the community support. And I still remember marching on Anzac Day and people cheering us. I was like, what's this about? But, yeah. Um, again, this comes in where people seem to think that we are special in some different type of personality. We're not. We are you. We are people in our community. Yeah. There is, we, we do the same job. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And you had a couple of members injured in that process too, which obviously. Yeah. So that was a hard one. It also took us out of the fight for a while because we didn't have a second, our bushfire tanker. So it was a wake up call. Obviously, you always think this job's risky, but when it happens, you realize how <laughs> risky, scary for everyone. But again, the support. Of the team, I think was essential during that. Yeah, because it was chaos too. It was chaos. Never what we want to see with any of our firefighters. We don't want to see them hurt. We try really hard to make sure we manage risks, but unfortunately, yeah, life happens. Mm. And um, yeah, a tree on the fire truck. How can you predict that? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's just that was just the luck of the draw that day. Yep. And I just. Oh, so thankful that they both at least got out of it mm. because it could have been a very different result. Yeah. But people drive to work every day and that's still a risk. You go and swim in the ocean, there's a risk. So we all take risks. It's just um, that was just that number got drawn that day. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, and through that process, did you have, and I guess probably not from your station considering the events that transpired, but uh, were, were members from the Valley more broadly going to other areas to assist also? Oh, no, we did as well. You did? We did as well. So we, um, when, it, when the truck was destroyed, we um, sort of ended up, it was towards the end of the fires locally. So we sort of stood back from that. Then when the fires moved further south down toward Batemans Bay, down into Eden in the sort of over the Christmas, New Year's period, we started sending crews. So um, I had several firefighters, myself included, went down south um, around Eden, Batemans Bay and worked down around there. So that was an interesting trip. And, and again, that's where you saw the communities just thankful that you were there. Yeah. That's to, 
mm-hmm. we were getting a sandwich from one of the self, uh, local um, country women authority girl, ladies down at um, Eden. Oh, God, it was the best thing I ever <laughs> eaten. I was just so hungry. And you turn around and the, they just load the trucks up with boxes of food. He's like, oh, no, we don't need any more. No, no, take more. Yep. So there, w- there was a lot of community support and understanding that they knew we were from everywhere else. I think they valued that we still cared to come down there and try and help. Um, but, yeah, we were involved down there for quite a while. Ricky, who ghosted in and out earlier, he was the first one to head down. He um, was in the truck from Maxwell. He went with Maxwell's crew down to um, Sydney and then Batemans Bay. And I flew down with the RAAF to try and relieve them. And, um, yeah, interesting interesting trip, that one. I don't, don't think I've ever seen um, anything like that where we were trying to land and they couldn't see and couldn't see anything and ended up at Canberra Airport. That's where I saw the Prime Minister on the fateful day that he tried to shake a lady's hand and she said... Oh, that day. The day that will go down in history forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Poor guy, he looked flogged. Yeah. Yeah. But that yeah, interesting trip. Mm. We got to eat all his leftover food though. That was good. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the ladies at the um, who were the flight attendants who work for the RAAF or Qantas, I think, I can't remember which one is, Qantas and they get seconded over. Walked into the um, terminal and there's 30 fireys all lying in the terminal. They went, uh, what are you doing? Well, we, we don't know yet. So they came, brought all the food off the plane. So um, got to eat his fairy floss for two days. So it was great. <laughs> Going back to the the preventative measures that people can put in place, you have a winter fire safety campaign in the works. We do. It's only just been launched. Obviously winter is the most common time for house fires in New South Wales. Last year, or certainly the last couple of years, we've had probably the most preventable fire-related deaths through house fires in New South Wales than we have in a long, long time. Increasingly, we're starting as a service and here locally, we're starting to see some concerning trends. Easiest one is smoke alarms, got no battery in them or no smoke alarms at all because, oh, they beep, pull it down. Mm. No fire blankets or fire extinguishers in the home. People sort of overloading PowerPoints. You know, it's the basic stuff that seems to have gone by the wayside. And unfortunately, over the last few years, a lot of these fire fatalities, there weren't working smoke alarms in the house. And I can't stress it enough just how important it is to have one and to not take it for granted. It's, they only last 10 years. People don't know that. People think, oh, well, no, I've got a smoke alarm. I press the button, it beeps. Well, if it's more than 10 years old, it's a good chance that it won't go off in a fire. Got to replace them. Mm. Good, good thing about modern alarms is that they have a battery, 10-year long-life battery in them, so you don't need to change the battery. You just put it up, test it, keep it clean. Magic. Yeah. You know, if you're hearing impaired, there are smoke alarms designed for that. So there's a vibrating it's a pad that goes under the pillow, so when you get a fire, that pad will vibrate quite strongly and you get bright flashing light on the on the bedside table to alert you that there's a fire. Mm-hmm. So... There are options available and it's just so important that people have it and that they're prepared for it. Another big one we'll get is fires in chimneys. People don't clean their flue out. It should be done every two years. There's no re- They say regularly, I'd say every two years at least, clean your flue out, making sure that's done. Don't put anything nearer than a metre to a heater. Um, lovely little rhyming slang there, but you know, that's any heater, so it's a bar heater or anything like that. Don't put anything close to a metre to it. Things will heat up and if they're too close, they can catch fire. 
you know, don't overload your PowerPoints. You know, that's another one that people will do, especially during winter. They'll jam, jam an extra electric blanket on their bed on a, another gang board that's hooked up to another gang board that's hooked up to a, a double adapter on the wall. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> you know, making sure your fire blanket is tested and okay because you fold it up for summer, you throw it in your, um, in your cupboard, get it out, one of the wires could be broken, you turn it on in the bed and leave it there waiting for you to warm up. That wire arc starts smouldering. So, again, this is all down about personal responsibility and understanding you know, what we need to do to keep us ourselves and our families safe. Yeah. So if people are interested in chatting to you more about that or in joining up, mm-hmm. how can they do that? Well, I've got a few few ways. Chatting to us, you can call the fire station. It diverts to my mobile. The fire, I can't remember the number off the top of my head. The number's in the phone book or you just Google it and it will divert to my mobile or deputy captain if I'm not available. At worst, leave a message. We'll get back to you. Recruitment or for fire safety information, you can head. If you want to do it yourself, you don't need my help. That's fine. Didn't want to talk to you anyway. <laughs> no. You can head to the website, which is just fire.nsw.gov.au, just Google Fire and Rescue New South Wales, that comes up. It's got toolkits and lots of stuff about everything fire-related. Fire Recruitment, we hold drills on the second and fourth Tuesday of every month, um, unless it happens to be fall on a public holiday in which we might bump it. It starts at 6, uh, six o'clock in the afternoon, goes to about 8 o'clock, come on down, have a chat. Happy to help you out. Otherwise, again, head to the website, follow the links and... That'll give you all the information you need to actually start your application process. Great. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for joining me today, Rob. Not a worry it's at all. It's been a very interesting conversation. Uh, not often said about me, but... <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully people who are listening and have been thinking about it will think about it some more. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And look, I want people to understand that you may not think you can do it, but you can. It's just about being willing to take that step and understand we will train you, we will teach you things, and we work together. And that's what makes it effective. Yeah. You don't need to be perfect. You don't need to be anything special. None of us are. We're, we're just, like I said, we're just people out there in the community. You wouldn't even know we're there half the time. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Thank you. Not a worry at all. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Valley Hub Stories podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode and always love your feedback. You can reach out to us on our socials at thevalleyhub underscore NV or email us on info at thevalleyhub.com.au. Bye for now.